Thank you, Jeremy, for reading that word. Thank you all for being here. My name is John Tarwater. I'm one of the elders here at Grace Baptist Church, one of the lay pastors, if you will. It's a joy for me to be here. Now, uh, if this is your first time here, uh, perhaps uh, you see that we're in the midst of a series going through the study of the Gospel of Matthew. This is our fourth week in the study, clipping along at a, a fairly quick pace. But it may sound odd that we would read a passage from Isaiah to prepare us to hear from God's Word in the book of Matthew. But you heard uh, Jeremy as he dwelt there on uh, uh, verse 9 about the good news that uh, Isaiah was prophesying. Isaiah is writing 700 years before Christ, and he looks to that day where there will be one who's bringing this good news of salvation. The first four books of the New Testament, we call them Gospels because they identify for us the source of that good news. The very term that Isaiah is using in the Old Testament, good news, is the same term that we see in the New Testament for this Gospel, this good news. The first four books are written to identify for us who Jesus Christ is, and in doing so, they tell us that He is the one bringing the good news. Now, we see this, for example, the book of John. John opens up with Jesus meeting his disciples for the first time. Andrew goes and gets his brother Peter, and Andrew tells Peter, come and see the one who is the Messiah, the Christ. Now, he tells Nathaniel that this is, the, or he tells Peter that this is the one who all the prophets and the law have spoken about. We have found him. And then Nathaniel actually exclaims later, this is the Son of God, the Messiah, the King. And the rest of the book of John is written to demonstrate, in fact, that that's who he is. So that at the end, of, so you can see, for example, in chapter 2, he turns the water into wine. Chapter 9, he heals a man who's born blind. Chapter 11, he raises Lazarus from the dead. And when he gets to the end of the book, John says that Jesus did many other signs. Many other miracles that are not recorded in this book, but I chose these. I've shaped my narrative to demonstrate that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. That was the purpose of the gospel, to demonstrate who Jesus was. Mark does the same thing, but he flips the script on us. He gives us the conclusion at the very beginning. Mark 1.1, the beginning of the gospel. The beginning of the good news, and it's about Jesus, who is the Christ, the Son of God. And then the rest of the book of Mark demonstrates that purpose. They're all written to demonstrate who Jesus is, the good news. The book of Matthew is no different, and in today's passage we're going to see that Matthew testifies to the identity of Jesus, that he is that king who is coming. John the Baptist testifies to who Jesus is. And at the end of the passage, the Father will testify to the identity of Jesus. That's the outline of Matthew chapter 3. So how is it that Matthew is demonstrating who Jesus is? We've seen this already in the first couple of chapters. In chapter 1, he demonstrates who Jesus is through the genealogies, reaching back to Genesis chapter 3.15, what most people recognize as the first gospel. That is, Adam and Eve fail in the garden. It's where they eat of the fruit. 
In chapter 3, verse 15, at the end of that um, uh, passage, we get the promise from God that one day he's going to send one who will crush the head of Satan. What Trent preached in Matthew chapter 1 was showing that through the genealogies, Jesus is one who is born through Adam, and he is that one who will crush the head of Satan. Trent called him the serpent slayer. He was that Davidic king that hoped for Savior, but as a descendant of David, perhaps he may be like David. Perhaps he would be one who would disappoint and fail as well. And so in verse 21, it says, no, this is Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus is the son who will not disappoint. When we get to chapter 2, last week, uh, Chris showed us that, again, pulling out events in Jesus' life showed that he fulfilled these prophecies, that he was this Nazarene who was despised. And for fear that you may think, oh, is he really like that, David? He said, no, no. Through the prophecies, we demonstrate he's a better Adam He's a better Moses. He's a better David. He's a better Israel. He's that king who will not disappoint. So when we come to chapter 3, John says he's going, or we see that Matthew's going to prove who the identity of Jesus is through a story about John the Baptist. So he introduces this new character into the narrative. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness. And so who is this new character, John the Baptist, and why does Matthew introduce him into the narrative at this point? What I want you to see is that what Matthew is doing is not unique to Matthew's gospel. In fact, all four gospels insert John the Baptist at this very moment into the narrative of, of the history of Jesus Christ. That is, each one of the gospel writers see that there's something about John that relates to the person and the ministry of Jesus Christ. In fact, they see John as uh, the fulfillment of prophecy. Luke chapter 1 tells us that John was born. Luke chapter 2, Jesus is born. Luke chapter 3, John comes preaching and introducing the ministry of Jesus Christ. John chapter 1, Jesus is born. It says, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Verse 14, that Word became flesh, the incarnation, Jesus Christ. Verse 15, John bore witness to him. So here we are in Matthew's gospel, and Matthew opens up and he introduces John by quoting this passage from the Old Testament, the passage that Jeremy actually read for us. But let me give you some context for understanding Matthew's pa uh, uh, Isaiah's passage. Isaiah opens up uh, the book, that is the prophet does, by outlining for us how Israel has failed in her call to the Lord. He was, Israel was called to be a holy nation, a people of God's own choosing, to be separate from the rest of the nations. But she failed in that, and God had entered into a covenant relationship with her, and she had failed miserably with the result that God was going to be judgment upon her. The first 35 chapters of the book of, of Isaiah is God bringing that judgment, a judgment that included exile into a foreign land. In chapter 40, Isaiah turns to discussing salvation of God for his people. A salvation that, in fact, he calls good news and a salvation that includes deliverance, a Savior. Go up on the mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. 
And this good news includes this idea that the Lord God is coming. He's coming to bring salvation. And look at how he explain, uh, des, uh, describes him. Uh, he'll bring with him reward. He'll bring recompense. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. Uh, he will gather the lambs in his arms, and he'll carry them in his bosom. Chapter 40 begins with those words, comfort, comfort my people. Uh, this, this, he's been talking about judgment, and here's this Lord God who is coming to comfort his people and bring salvation. Now what's interesting about Isaiah is the one who is bringing this good news three different times, uh, Isaiah refers to him with a nameless voice. Chapter 40, verse 3, verse 6, and verse 9. Here it is in verse 3. A voice cries, in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. When we get to Matthew's gospel, he gives us an identity to that nameless voice. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. That voice in Isaiah, Matthew says, it was John the Baptist. He was the one who was introducing the source of that good news. But Matthew's not unique in this. We see that Jesus likewise made that connection. Jesus went out and he spoke concerning John. And he said, what then did you go out to see? When you came out into the wilderness, when you came out into the desert, what is it that you wanted to see? Was it a prophet? Yes, and I tell you more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare the way before you. Jesus. Matthew, and John the Baptist himself. He said, I am the voice of the one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Each of the gospel writers, Jesus and John the Baptist, recognize that there's something unique about John the Baptist as he prepares the way of the Lord. Now in the first uh, century Palestine, I should say first century Israel, uh, if a king were coming, Every effort would be made to ensure that there were no barriers in the path. They'd fix the roads, repair the roads. It may involve straightening the roads. If the president or somebody were to come here to Dayton or um, uh, Columbus, we would, we've seen the, you know, the motorcade comes before him. They cut off all the exit ramps and the entrance ramps so that the dignitary or the president would have a clear path to travel. There's one who prepares the way, and what Matthew is saying is that the king is coming and John the Baptist is seen as the one who is preparing the way. He's making straight the path. By the very fact that Matthew has shaped the narrative to say that John is preparing the way, Matthew is saying that Jesus is that king who is coming. And this preparing the way, Luke gives us a little more information. He says it involves turning the children of Israel to the Lord their God. It involves turning the hearts of the fathers to their children. Whatever preparing the way of the Lord means, <laughs> it involves their whole being. This not only changing directions, but turning to the Lord and turning their hearts. John's role in preparing the way for the king was to prepare the hearts of the people for his coming. Now look at how John does this. John does this by 
verse 2, calling the people to repent, and in verse 8, calling the people to bear fruit. That's the outline for this uh, first little section. He, John is called to prepare the way for the coming of the king, and he does this by calling the people to repent and calling them to bear fruit. So let's explore this a little further. Calling the people to repent. Verse 2, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This kingdom of heaven is Matthew's way of returning, referring to the kingdom of, of God. This repent involves this turning of the whole being. And to a, to a degree, John is reaching back to Deuteronomy chapter 30. Don't miss this. At the end of the first five books of the Old Testament, at the end of, of Deuteronomy, we get this section called the blessings and the curses. And what is happening is that Moses is looking out to that day in the future where he's anticipating that the children of Israel will not keep the stipulations of the covenant. And he said that should the people not keep the covenant, then the Lord God will bring you and your king, the one whom you have set over you, to a nation that you do not know, one that your fathers don't know. And is there you'll serve foreign gods, not real gods, but ones made of stone and ones made of, of uh, wood. Moses anticipates not only that day when the people will be disobedient to the covenant, but to the day when they will also recognize their condition before God. He said there will be a day when the people say, we've been unfaithful, and God has been faithful to his word to judge us. And at that time, he says, they'll cry out, and they'll return to the Lord their God. But when they return this time, they'll be able to obey because God will work a miracle in their lives. He will circumcise their hearts. What Moses is talking about in Deuteronomy 30 is the new covenant. We see this picked up in Jeremiah 31 where Jeremiah says, the old covenant was written on, on tablets of stone and you could break them. But this new covenant, God is writing on your heart so that you can obey. Ezekiel 36 talks about it in terms of, and God in the new covenant will give you a new spirit. That is, Moses looks out to that day in the future when the people of God will call upon him, they'll repent, and God will circumcise their heart, give them a new heart, give them a new spirit, and they'll be able to obey. John is calling the people to this. Repent. It is a radical change. One commentator translates it, be converted. <laughs> be converted. Why? Because what he's talking about in repentance is a radical change in our life that will be evident to the watching world. Now, that was the meaning of his message. What was the effect of that message? Many were baptized. He writes, perhaps somewhat hyperbolically here, Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him. They were being baptized and confessing their sins. Now, I seriously doubt that every individual in Jerusalem and Judea and the region were, were being baptized. But the point was, there was no place that was not touched by the success of John's ministry. Many people were coming to be baptized. In fact, John's ministry was so successful that perhaps there was also confusion about who John the Baptist was. John's gospel says it this way. They were asking John the Baptist, are you the Christ? He said, well, no, I'm not the Christ. 
They said, are you Elijah? He said, no. The prophet, no. (laughs) And so Matthew summarizes that confusion with John outlining the staggering differences between him and that king for whom he is preparing the way. He says, hey, the one who is coming, he is mightier than I. In fact, he is so mighty, I'm not worthy to perform the normal role of a slave. I am not worthy to carry his sandals. I baptize you with water, but the one who is coming, he baptizes you with the real thing, the Holy Spirit and with fire. Now catch what John is doing. By John telling you who he is not, he's testifying to who Jesus is. Jesus is the one who is mightier. Jesus is the one whose sandals he's not worthy to carry. Jesus is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit and fire. Jesus is that Davidic king, that hoped-for savior, that one who will crush the head of Satan, who will not disappoint. John is preparing the way for that king. And secondly, John is calling the people to bear fruit in that preparation for it. In fact, bear fruit that is in keeping with that repentance. Now, there's a degree to which it sounds like John is being redundant. If the people truly turned, if the people truly repented, they were converted. They became a new creation. God did that circumcision of their heart. He gave them a new heart. And they would be bearing fruit. But apparently there were some in John's day who were coming to be baptized, but they had not truly repented. Here's how John says it. He says, when he saw the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers. John is already connecting them with that serpent of old. Who warned you to flee the wrath to come? That is, there were people who were coming to be baptized in order to avoid God's wrath. But what John is saying is mere baptism will not allow you to avoid the wrath. Only true repentance that is evidenced by this life that bears fruit. But don't miss the point that indeed the wrath is coming. They were right about that. They just weren't right about how to avoid it. So he says in the text, the axe is laid to the root. Those trees that don't produce They'll be cut down. The Lord already has in his hand the winnowing fork where he separates the good stuff, the wheat, from the bad stuff, the chaff, which will be burned up in the unquenchable fire. So there really is the wrath of coming. But John says, mere baptism won't allow you to avoid it. Neither will your lineage. He says, don't presume, don't delude yourself into thinking that because you are a child of Abraham, you can avoid the wrath. John says, for I declare to you that from these stones, God could raise up children of Abraham. His whole point is this. (laughs) True repentance will be recognized by a life that bears fruit. And that kind of a repentance allows you to avoid the wrath to come. Now, I don't want to run across this section and miss the obvious application to our lives. Here's the point. All of us here this morning, each one of us, the the biblical narrative makes sense that at some time in our life, 
we have followed in the steps of Israel. And we have been disobedient to the moral standards of God. The way the New Testament says it is, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And just like Israel's disobedience opened them up to the judgment and the wrath of God, so does our own disobedience. Romans chapter 1 says, For the wrath of God is being poured out against all unrighteousness. Or, as he says in chapter 6, the wages of that sin is death. If, if he were to use the, the words in our own passage, he'd say, the axe is laid to the root. And the tree, the, those that don't produce, will be thrown into the fire. He's, it's his way of designating the ultimate judgment and destination of those who have refused God's salvation. But it's at this point in the text that the message of Matthew and John the Baptist are so important because they're bringing us the good news <laughs> that that hoped-for Savior, the one who will crush the head of Satan, is also your Savior. This is the reason Matthew introduced him in chapter 1, is you shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. We don't have to remain there. John the Baptist's message is repent. In fact, John the Baptist's message is the message of Jesus. In chapter 4, next week, when Jesus begins his ministry, his first words recorded in the text are, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's a repeat of John's, for it is in that that we find salvation. There's, there's no doubt that there's probably someone here today that that has not been a reality in their life yet. I would say make every effort at the end of the service to find one of the elders, one of the pastors, to see how you can make that repentance and step towards salvation real in your own life. John the Baptist, he prepared the way for the king, and secondly, he announced that the king's kingdom is at hand. Now, John was announcing this kingdom by this baptism and this message of repentance, if you will, but, but don't miss this here. That if the kingdom, in fact, notice it says repent for, on account of, the kingdom is at hand. The reason we're supposed to repent is because just in front of us is the kingdom. And the rest of the book of Matthew is dealing with that kingdom topic, if you will. So then Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7, we get the Sermon on the Mount, which is all about the kingdom. <laughs> Where, you know, blessed are those who, who um, mourn. Blessed are those who uh, hunger and thirst for righteousness' sake are all dealing with kingdom characteristics. Then he talks about uh, our purpose within the kingdom. But here's the thing. If there is a kingdom, there must be a king. <laughs> That is, by the very fact that he's announcing a kingdom, he's testifying again to who Jesus Christ is. And remember, his role was to prepare us for the king. So here's my point. If you want to hear what God is going to be saying in chapter 5, you have to do chapter 3. John the Baptist is preparing you for the king, Jesus, who is coming to speak in chapter 5. And if you want to be prepared, you repent. It's your preparation. John not only prepares for the king, announces the king, but he's going to baptize the king. So look at John's baptism, chapter 3, verses 13 and following. And I put it here as the shocking nature of request. 
Jesus comes from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized. Now, John is shocked that Jesus would come to him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you, and you come to me? Now, those of us who are New Testament Christians, we recognize what shocked John. For we know even more than John. Hebrews 4 tells us that Jesus in every way was tempted as we are, yet without sin. And so if John is preaching this baptism of repentance, then why would Jesus come to be baptized? Indeed, this this is the shocking nature of his request. And so we ask the question, what was the reason for Jesus' request? Why was Jesus baptized? In order to answer this question, we need to distinguish between different baptisms that are taking place in our text this morning. That is, John's baptism is different from the Christian baptism that we practice here at Grace. And both of those baptisms are different than the baptism Jesus received at John's hand in chapter 3. Let me see if I can outline this for you. When John came to baptize... There were many Jews in the first century who were already practicing baptism. That is, as a Gentile would leave uh, Gentile faith and come inside the Jewish faith, they would partake in this cleansing ceremony, this Jewish baptism, if you will. So when John came preaching to repent and be baptized, John, the shocking nature of his request was that he included the Jews in the message. That's the reason the translation earlier, to repent, be converted, is so appropriate here. Because everyone needed it. John was shocking everyone. He said, listen, everyone repent, Jews and Gentiles, and turn to the Lord. And then be baptized, is what he says. He preached a baptism of repentance for the people of sins. That is, the baptism was to signify that true repentance had occurred. That people had truly turned to the Lord. That was John's baptism. But that is not what we teach in Christian baptism. Now, don't get me wrong. In Christian baptism, we teach that everyone needs to turn, that they need to repent and live differently. But in Christian baptism, what we stress is our union with Jesus Christ. That's the beauty. It's resting upon Romans chapter 6. It says, do you not know that you are united with Christ? You are are united in his death, and you're united in his resurrection. As Christ died, we died to the old self. We repented. (laughs) And as Christ rose, so we are risen with him to live and to walk in the newness of life, it says. Now, in Christian baptism, there are two people who are saying something. First, the one who is baptized, the baptizee, the believer. The believer who walks through the waters back here is saying, I want you all to know that I am united with Christ. And this is why the one who is baptizing says, "He's, you know, I baptize you now in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And he baptizes, buried with Christ, raised to walk in the unit's life. It's, it's resting on that Romans 6 passage. But the church is also saying something in baptism. See, Christian baptism rests upon Matthew 28. In Matthew 28, uh, the author writes, Jesus said, all authority in heaven and earth is given to me. 
Jesus is the one who possesses authority, and then he designates, he authorizes the church to do something. We see this both in Matthew 18, we've got the, the keys of the kingdom that are given, and in Matthew 28. It is the church that goes and makes disciples. It is the church that baptizes. The church is the only one that is authorized to baptize. So when the church then baptizes one in the waters, the church is affirming that we have seen enough evidence in this individual's life to believe that the gospel has taken root. There's enough, individ there's enough evidence in his life to believe that indeed he is united with Christ. This is why we vote when we have a baptism. This one, you know, you normally the person who's baptizing them will ask them a couple of questions. You know, do you believe that Jesus Christ died for you, that he rose again, that you're united with him in his death, and the person affirms these truths, and the person is baptized, then we say, to the church. You know, this one has come for baptism. For when you come to the baptism, you're not only affirming your commitment to Christ, you're affirming your commitment to a local body. You're always baptized into a body of believers. And the body is now saying, we believe it. Yes. Yes. This is why the, the elders, they interview one who comes to be baptized. We ask them these questions. We ask them, explain to us the gospel message and how has that taken root in your life? That's different than John's baptism. Now, this brings us to Jesus, who was baptized. We've already said he is one who's without sin. He, he, he's not doing this baptism of repentance. And the Christian baptism, it finds its basis in Jesus' baptism. And the answer for Jesus' baptism is here in verse 15. John has said, and you come to me? And Jesus says, let it be so. For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Now this is kind of a difficult phrase, but this is important for us to understand. This this song that we just sang, the Lamb of God who died for us. This is a passage that, notice, it's for us. It's fitting for, it's for our. <laughs> In other words, this is a passage that points to the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ. He, he didn't repent of his sins, he's repented of our sins. He lived the life that you and I are unable to live, and he died the death that you and I deserved. This was his first step as a public ministry, and that step was toward the cross. So that when Christ looks down, it says that we are justified, but, but the idea here is that Christ sees the, the Father sees the righteousness of Jesus, not our righteousness. And what Christ did here was his first step toward fulfilling all of that righteousness. Wow. The Christian baptism finds its basis, its roots, its fundamental bearings in what Christ began in this baptism. So what was the result of his request? It says that when Jesus was baptized, that immediately he went up from the waters, and behold, or as Chris would say, you're not going to believe this, right? <laughs> the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, you're not going to believe this, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. In these two behold statements, 
these awe-inspiring moments, these you're not going to believe this moments, the Father testifies to the identity of Jesus. And he says, this is the king. Now here, I want you to see this. In writing here, Paul, uh, Matthew, is going to appeal to a couple of passages. Psalm 2 and uh, two passages from Samuel. Okay, So let's look at Psalm 2. So Jesus is baptized and the Spirit descends on him. This is pulling from these passages in the Old Testament that talk about the coming of a king. So the first thing I'm saying here is the Spirit testifies that Jesus is the king. Here's how I get there. Psalm chapter 2. If you recall, about a year ago, uh, Brother Chris preached a a passage that uh, dealt with how Psalm 1 and 2 are an introduction to all the Psalms. And so in Psalm chapter 2, he says, The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord. So here, I've, I've written on the right, here's my summary. The kings, they're rebels here, and the kings of the earth are rebelling against, notice who they're rebelling against, they're rebelling against the Lord, and they're rebelling against his anointed. The anointed is one who stands in God's place so that when you um, rebel against God's king, you rebel against him. And this word that we translate anointed is our Hebrew word Messiah. Now I put it with a small m because this is a psalm of David. David's writing, he is the anointed one, but the psalm is, is foreshadowing that ultimate anointed one, the big Messiah, if you will. But David was a little Messiah. He was a little anointed one, if you will. So let's look at where this comes from. In 1 Samuel 16, the Lord said to Samuel, fill your horn with oil and go, and I'll send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I provided for myself a king among his sons. They've got this horn filled full of oil. And Samuel took the horn of oil and he anointed there's that word is again, David, in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of God rushed upon David from that day forward. In the Old Testament, when God anointed a king, when God wanted to declare that this is my representative on the earth, he anointed him, with the result that he had the Spirit of God upon him. So in, Saul, in Matthew's, when the Spirit of God descends on him, He's declaring, this is the king who serves in my stead. Now, in case you think, Brother John, I think you might be stretching it. Let's go to the next part, (laughs) okay? The father testifies that Jesus is the son, which is another way of saying that he is the king. He says, behold, the voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. We go back to Psalm 2 for just a second. Verse 7, this is now David talking. This is the king talking, and he's reporting what the Lord has said to him. David says, I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me. So what did God say? You are my son. Today I have begotten you. And ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage. As my son, you have all that is mine. Just simply ask. Now, what would you see is there, the king and the Lord, in poetic language, stand in this father-son relationship. Now, this happens throughout the whole Old Testament. 
I'm giving you one example here in Psalm, but let's flip over to 2 Samuel for just a second. Again, talking about David. It says, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, when you die, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish my kingdom. God's saying, hey, David, from you, your sons, I will raise up other kings, okay? He shall build a house for my name. I will establish the throne of his king forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. This is the way, so when God anoints a king, one who stands in his place, in the poetic language of the Old Testament, this is a father-son relationship. So we go back to Matthew's passage, we've got him anointed with the Spirit, and Jesus says to him, this is my beloved son, and whom I this is the one who is serving as king on the earth, in my stead. Powerful. Powerful. So here's what Jesus, John the Baptist has done. He's prepared the way for the king. He's announced the coming of his kingdom. And he baptized the king. The one that the Spirit and the Father have just testified is the king, his beloved son. So what does that mean for you and me? I mean, here's the question. What does it mean that Jesus is king and that he is coming? Well, the application of the text is pretty clear today. Prepare for the king. I mean, in the New Testament, we, we hear all the time, Jesus is coming again. Jesus is coming again. This is, we don't know the day nor the hour, but the point, the reason the, reason the text tells us that is you just simply need to be ready. And so in our text today, the writer is saying, be prepared. Because when the king comes, he brings salvation and deliverance, but he also brings judgment and wrath. And it's because of that that we want to be ready. It's good news for those who have responded. It can be terrifying for those who have not. But it's still good news because you can respond. This reason the New Testament tells us today is the day. Of salvation today is the day and so that's the message that's the application dear Heavenly Father this we know you've given us your word wherein we have been comforted by the fact that you have told us that uh, there will be one coming who will crush the head of Satan you've told us through your word that Jesus is that hoped for Savior that he is Emmanuel, God with us. He will not disappoint. He is the king who is coming again. Father, help us to be prepared. For those of us who are saved, we know, Father, at times we walk in disobedience. There are areas of our lives for which we need to repent, turn to the Lord, and live in the power of the gospel that you, you offer us, the spirit who allows us to live obediently. But if there's any here this morning, Father, who do not yet know you as the Lord and Savior, who've not yet confessed that Jesus is Lord, I pray that today will be the day of salvation for them. Father, help them to repent. As your word says, help thou now my unbelief. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.